The Dog That Came Back From The Dead by Eric Wagonnecht with Tess Strokes from OutsideOnline.com. On a run in the Rocky Mountains, the author's dog, Merle, fell more than 240 metres, injured beyond hope. But he wasn't done yet. We charged up the final ascent of the nearly 4,000-metre Grand Traverse Peak in Colorado, USA. My new running partner, Merle, a one-year-old Blue Australian Shepherd, seemed unfazed by the previous 13 kilometres we'd covered. I also felt strong, energised by the clear Rocky Mountains air and endless blue sky. It was Father's Day 2017, and I was set to return home to my four-year-old son, Axel, my nine-year-old daughter, Lily, and my wife, Susan, by noon. As I reached the summit, I heard a short yelp, but assumed Merle would be seconds behind me, as he had been all morning. I snapped a photo of the view for my family, called out to the dog, then tucked my phone in my pack and headed back down the trail. Merle was nowhere to be seen. Merle! Merle! I called. Where are you? I felt a tickle of panic in my throat as I threaded my way down the ridge, still seeing no signs of him. But he is athletic and young and invincible. He must be fine, I reasoned. Then, more than a hundred metres further down, I saw his paw prints on a strip of snow at the top of a steep chute. I followed them cautiously until they disappeared entirely off the edge. About 240 metres below, the chute ended abruptly in a boulder field and a massive cliff. Below that, I could see a wide, empty, snow-covered basin. There was no sign of Merle. I could still hear that last yelp in my mind, and now I realised what it had signalled. Merle was gone. Merle and I had started the day at 4am. I'd stacked my running clothes next to the bed the night before and filled my pack with water bottles, trail food and a can of sardines, my go-to for big days in the mountains. It would be my first long run in the Gore Range this summer and my first big adventure with Merle. We'd bought the blue and brown-eyed Aussie Shepherd six months earlier. Merle quickly proved himself to be a phenomenal running partner. He could easily bang out 24 kilometres. That morning, we drove 78 kilometres from our house to the Deluge Lake Trailhead in Vale. As a kid, I made frequent trips to Vale, where my late father had a house. I'd hiked this trail every year since I was seven. My dad, a mountaineer and ultra-runner, would take me and my younger sister up the 13 kilometres to Deluge Lake, training, he called it, for our annual summit of Mount of the Holy Cross, the peak where I would spread his ashes in 2002. I hadn't thought twice about taking Merle up Grand Traverse. In fact, I'd expected him to beat me to the summit. Which is why, even as I stood above the steep chute, I still thought, it's going to be okay. I knew this summit was the only spot on the trail where I could get phone reception, so I called Susan, panicked. Merle fell. I don't know what happened, I told her. I'm going for him. It's okay. I'm okay. Then I saw something running in the basin below me. There he is! Oh my god, I'm okay, I need to go! Okay, be safe, was all Susan had time to say, before I hung up and ran down the ridge. Merle was sprinting downhill, away from me. I couldn't follow his nearly vertical route without technical climbing gear, so I needed to find a safer way down. After nearly an hour, I had made it to the basin and saw Merle standing on a large rock outcropping. Relief washed over me. 
Mel, come here, buddy. Good dog, I called. But he ran away. I didn't blame him. I'd taken him on a selfish pursuit to a selfish place. I'd pushed him too far. I followed Merle up the basin. Soon I was close enough to see that he looked oddly swollen. He was covered with lacerations and his gait was hobbled and stiff. When I got within a metre of him, he dived into a crack at the edge of a field of rocks. I grabbed his back legs for a moment, but he squirmed away, deep into a subterranean pocket within the boulders. I moved rocks and snow away from the crack's entrance until two boulders slid together, clamping my ring finger between them. I yanked out my hand and saw the nail was smashed and spurting blood. I threw on a glove from my pack to contain the flow, then kept digging. A few minutes later, I'd cleared enough snow to stick my head in the crack. I peered down into the darkness. I could hear the jingle of Merle's collar, but I couldn't see him. I yelled, alternating between nearly hysterical and calm and coaxing. No response. I decided to give him space. Maybe he was okay and my panic was freaking him out. I opened the can of sardines and left them as a lure at the mouth of the cave. While I waited, I went to the scene of the fall. Above, I saw the path Merle had taken. He'd slid more than 200 metres down the upper snowfield, fallen off a 12-metre cliff, then rolled down another 30-metre cliff to the lower snowfield where I now stood. How did he walk away from this, I thought. I returned to the crack, leaned in and called his name again. Inside, it smelt wet. After a decade of archery hunting, I knew the scent. It smelt like death. I spent another hour crouched outside the cave until the jingle of Merle's collar and his deep breathing stopped. It was late afternoon, and I worried about losing daylight. I was on the wrong side of a big mountain, many kilometres from home, and not prepared to spend the night outside. I packed up, traversed the basin, descended a slushy snowfield, then found my way to the base of the chute I'd come down. I climbed the melting snowpack as quickly as I could, reusing my kicked steps from the descent. When I got reception, I phoned Susan. I'm okay, but I'm alone. Is he dead? Yeah. Then I ran down the trail. I didn't know that Lily and Axel had heard me through our car's Bluetooth system. After I hung up, they burst into tears. I've always owned dogs. They accompanied me into the mountains where, bounding off leash, they seemed protected by an invincible athleticism. Merle was bred for the trail. I had assumed the rugged Aussie would take to the high alpine trail intuitively, but the reality is that almost no one thinks about training their dogs for the mountains. In potentially deadly terrain, it's critical that humans help dogs understand their limits, says Amber Kwan, who runs Summit Dog Training. She helps owners and dogs prepare for outdoor adventures through relationship building and body conditioning classes. Dogs can't talk to us, but they have other ways of communicating. It's up to us to learn their idiosyncrasies. Of course, it's difficult to tune into a dog's subtle behavioural changes when you're listening to a podcast or chatting with your climbing partner. It's as simple as putting your phone down and being present in the moment, says Quan. That communication leads to trust, which is the other part of taking a dog into the mountains. You have to trust your dog to make good decisions by giving her a safe amount of freedom and not always interrupting her natural behaviours, says Quan. We want owners to help their dogs, but not micromanage them. The bottom line is, she says, if a trip will be more stressful with your dog, 
leave her at home. I knew Susan questioned whether I'd done enough to keep Mel safe. My possible carelessness gnawed at me too, so I called our longtime friend, Charlie Manier, owner of Vale Valley Animal Hospital, to get some closure. He assured me I had done everything I could to save Merle. He crawled into that cave to secure shelter, which is typical for a dog in distress who is on the verge of dying. They hide and hunker down, he said. Three weeks later, on July 8, a real estate agent named Dana Dennis Gumber was preparing a listing about a kilometre from the Deluge Lake trailhead where Merle and my journey had started off. She noticed a ragged-looking dog near the property's deck and assumed he belonged to the landscapers working on the complex. But when she returned to the house two hours later, the crew had left and the dog was curled up by the front door. Gumba had noticed him limping earlier, and now she saw that he was filthy weak and skeletally thin. She ushered the dog into her car and took him home for food and water. Miraculously, Gumba found that the dog still had a collar. That afternoon, she left a voice message on my phone. I have Merle. Please call me. I'd left town a few days earlier for an overseas work trip. I got the call and FaceTimed Susan immediately where it wasn't yet dawn. Neither of us knew what the message meant. Susan assumed it was a sick prank, but she agreed to call the woman that morning. A few hours later, we had an answer. Merle was alive, Susan said. I'm getting him this afternoon. When Susan got to Gumba's house, she collapsed as soon as she saw Merle's battered body. He seemed to recognise her, though his wandering eyes made her think he'd suffered some brain damage. Susan drove him to the animal hospital, where emergency veterinarian Rebecca Hall found that Merle had two detached retinas, a punctured lung, facial lacerations and sores on his hind legs. He had lost about 5.5 kilograms, nearly a third of his weight. His stool showed he'd survived on pine needles and berries. He was tattered, but remarkably he didn't need stitches and none of his bones were broken. Dr. Hall was amazed that Merle had walked away from falling so far. He had hunkered down in a cave, likely gone into a coma, then woken up and, seriously injured, covered the 32 kilometres in 20 days to return home. You don't hear a lot of stories about dogs surviving in the wilderness, says Quan but herding breeds are driven and tough. His return was most likely testament to his positive association with home. These dogs are incredibly bonded to their owners. Quan says Merle probably followed human smells on the trail to get back to civilization. After a week in the wilderness, Merle's senses had likely sharpened. Over the next week, Merle recovered. His wandering eyes straightened, he gained weight, and his gait returned to normal. Axel and Lily spent every moment with their best friend. When I got home later that month, I anxiously entered the living room, kneeled down and called Merle. He gave a quick bark before lowering his ears, tucking in his tail and wiggling onto my lap. He clawed my chest like he wanted to climb on top of my shoulders and kissed my face. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au Brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia Narration by Zoe Mernier Sound production by Ricky Price